Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Seattle today at the uh, head offices of NBBJ, and I'm joined with uh, Sean McKeever, who's an architect there, as well as Dan Atney, who's a design computation lead. Uh, guys, thanks for uh, squeezing me into your schedule. Absolutely. I've been a big fan of, you, uh, of your company for some time, and uh, it's actually the first time I've visited Seattle. And uh, I was not disappointed with the rain. I got it, I got it as, they didn't tell me it was going to be sunshine as well as rain. So, Please keep that a secret. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're surrounded in your very cool offices with lots of off-form concrete and a surprising number of books and analog models. So I, I feel some confidence that it's not just all digital around here. That's right. We like to live uh, a little bit in both worlds, the analog and the digital. And depending on who you're... Who you're talking to, there are definitely folks who lean towards the analog or lean towards the digital. I think Dan and I, maybe I do a better job of uh, living in both. You do a really good job of living in both of those spaces too, Dan, I think. Uh, well, no matter what, the outcomes are tangible. That's true. We, we are, well, almost no matter what. <laughs> well, you can't live in your digital model. That, that's, that's right. That's <laughs> the thing. Well, you know, when the company first started, was, that a, was it a conscious decision to really make a bet on, on new tools and digital technologies and data? Because that... That seems to have been a, a big part of, you know, why tech clients love working with you guys so much these days. You know, maybe it's actually the other way around. Uh, you know, we started out as a traditional architecture firm in Seattle, um, working on regional projects, and I think seventy part, years ago. Seventy years ago, yeah, and I think part of the transformation is around how we address our clients, and we live in this culture of, uh, you know, digital accessibility and and tools and. Um, for us, I think seeing the world around us here in Seattle has been an important part of us being technically savvy. Right. So you, you, you essentially you've, you've grown and evolved with your clients. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think firm leadership has done a great job of really identifying where the industry could be headed and trying to be at the forefront of really leveraging digital tools. People who are thinking a little bit differently about leveraging some of those things or creating new tools is a way to work smarter. Um, and We've seen some success with that. But let's, let's talk about some of those tools. So, design computation is a is, is an area you guys talk about a lot. What is it, and how does it work? Sure. So, I think the main idea is that um, as we design buildings, and this is something that people recognize for a while, uh, the whole effort really is is an activity in cataloging information about what the building will contain, what it'll be made out of. Um, and it became clear to us that uh, not only do we just want to be tracking that information as we build buildings, but we also want to be considering um, the new circumstances we're creating and, and basically leveraging um, digital methods, whether they're algorithmic or, um, or graphical, to help us document and, and hopefully anticipate what this environment we're creating will be like. Right. So, I mean, in, in real terms, it is... <clears throat> I guess there's a number of trade-offs that clients face when they try to work out a floor plan. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the past there was kind of aesthetics or, you know, who got what windows or, you know, who got the biggest office. Yeah. But are they, uh, how are you using algorithms now in order to address those trade-offs? You know, in the past we talked about this, there's this idea that the architect has an intuition for things, whether it's uh, lighting, sound. Uh, Airflow. Yeah, the experience in the space. Um, 
And what we're able to do is to bear some of those those intuitions out. Um, and especially when it comes to our clients, being able to demonstrate and prove just what the intuition has said, um, it closes the loop on that design. Um, the designer imagines what's possible, and then we are able to demonstrate and prove that to our clients. Um, and part of it comes from, unlike uh, in the past where we drew every line, having a computer look at a floor plan for us and actually determine distances of travel and possible views, um, amount of light, all those things that can be calculated based on geometry. It's still a matter of asking the right questions. Uh, and there's certain intuition that shouldn't be lost. For instance, I know that the north light is still going to act a certain way. It's still going to be very even throughout the course of the day. We're not going to get harsh shadows, except for maybe in the extreme afternoons. Uh, but when we take it a step further and we start to see, well, really how deep into a space are we getting? Are we getting daylight? Uh, how even is the access throughout the floor plate? We start to uh, simulate glare, those types of things that we you know, had a hard time doing uh, you know, in, in years past of the profession. Uh, we're starting to, to do you know, almost on every project now. In a way, is it rather than create a sort of a fixed building that you can make trade-offs around, is it more that you're creating a like a, a model with various assumptions that can be pushed and pulled? Parametric design at yeah. its finest, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, where do we, how do we bring the, how do we fold the client in in that decision-making process is, is something that's really fun. Asking like asking those right questions and and putting the right bounds I think on ourselves in in these uh, parametric cases where we're what, what is parametric design but I mean as simplest it's understanding that each option in a design is a, a series of, of variables and that the variables uh, can be adjusted based on intuition based on uh, economic value and then the output is a design option and so by varying certain key parameters in building you actually can generate numerous options and what are some of the parameters that have the biggest leverage? Like, I mean, what, what are, I mean, you can have infinite number of options, but, <laughs> but where can you get the biggest bang for your buck? I think that uh, one, of the, one of the ones that's at the top of the list always is your balance of how much energy your building is consuming versus how much glazing that you have, how much, you know, how much, how many views out, access to, you know, the amazing views from wherever you are uh, is usually a balance. The windows are the poorest performer uh, traditionally in a building envelope. All of the solid, opaque, thick wall is where you get your insulation value. And um, really, that's, uh, energy codes are getting uh, more and more demanding and saying you can use less and less glass. I think rightfully so, you know, uh, we're with a goal of getting uh, buildings to use less energy hmm. because they're energy hogs. Um, but we try and uh, really optimize as a sweet spot. And, and you know, if you provide more glass, uh, do it intentionally. Know what the consequences are. How much more energy per year are you going to be using if you put in this giant wall of west-facing glass that looks out over the water? Um, and let the client be really informed about that. You know, as right a now, decision. not you know, know know your trade-off rather than uh, you know have to deal with that down the line when we learn year one that the building is open. Yeah. Well, what about some of these new dimensions that are that previously you couldn't quantify, like productivity, collaboration, creativity? Uh, I, I noticed in your, um, I think you call it a human experience toolkit, you, you, you're, you're starting to quantify some of those measures. Yeah, and what's, I think what's really interesting about this to us is that it's an exploration with our clients. Um, it's about asking them the right questions about what's important to them and how they measure success for their business. Um, and that always gives us clues to what we're looking for in a spatial sense that relate to those relationships. Um, 
So uh, one way to do that is to obviously just look at how people are positioned and especially if they're part of different groups that maybe should be interacting or could be interacting, how do you position people in a building to be at their best to collaborate effectively to get what they need out of a space? Is there a correlation between line of sight and people's likelihood to collaborate? Certainly, um, and even more so, the, just the distance you're away from a person actually does. Um, what's interesting is that... Um, yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, and, it's interesting that those we found that those um, those distances and as well as like proximities and, and um, sense of connection is borne out not only physically but also in the total outcome of the interaction between people. Um, their behavior on email can look a lot like their behavior um, in the real world. So you know the person you're not going to talk to may not be a person you end up interacting with and having a, a project and an innovation with. Right. And how have you, I mean, what are clients asking you increasingly? Like, you know, when they come and tell you what's important, are you noticing a sort of a similar set of requirements from 21st century style companies? I think um, the, the pendulum, the pendulum in, certainly in workplace has, has swung back and forth from uh, big open offices of the 50s and 60s to closed cubicles, uh, you know, uh, productivity of the... 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s, and then which, which incidentally was at the time sold as an improvement on, Absolutely. The, on, yeah. the, on the open space. Absolutely, cubicles were meant to give you a sense of empowerment. That's right, and and you know we've shifted. Uh, there's certainly a lot of you know the tech industries that we work with are uh, less hierarchical and um, open floor plans, and really um, maximizing the the value of your uh, you know real estate. So your employee per square foot, uh, you know that number is really being scrutinized, especially in the big cities that we're working in. So it's a it's a balance of how much you know open floor plan do we have? You've seen we have a pretty open office here uh, where. You know, there's a very flat structure here, hierarchically. We've got the partners sitting next to the interns, you know, in any given desk. And uh, that's one kind of extreme of that pendulum. I think we're seeing it move back just a little bit right now towards that being a good model for a lot of different practices of work, but also really acknowledging the respite now that we need, uh, you know, in order to be turned on and collaborative and creative. Uh, we also need moments in our day where we can pause, rest, reflect, and those don't happen out in the open, right. uh, at least you know, in a floor plate. Maybe uh, in nature they do, and so uh, trying to create access to nature is another one of those things that we're trying to pump more into and around our buildings. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth noting that there's that we're moving away from a binary um, approach, to, or at least a uniform approach to these issues, um, in that in the past you would apply systems like that uniformly, whether it's structure or seating arrangements, um, because you understood that the best practice was to lay things out universally across the building and do the best thing for everybody by making a, a common system. Now we understand that you can blend systems. Um, in a workplace you can have open spaces, transitionary spaces, standing spaces, um, collaboration spaces, and provide them at the right mix, mm. and then test to see if the mix is working. Um, and that goes with that goes for design options as well. So whether it's structural systems um, or, or space, space sizes that we can provide a mix and actually evaluate them because 
we don't have to have one archetype, but every space in the building can be looked at with the same rigor with a kind of computational method. So if, you, if you've essentially set up a potential building as a parametric model, can you kind of scenario test those different configurations before you even break ground? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know what we, what we think is that it's hard to exactly predict the way buildings can behave. There's so many variables that we don't want to make the um, statement that we will simulate reality to an exact degree, but instead use a kind of comparative analysis with a best guess to figure out, in this case, how might this perform? And and try to point out any glaring gaps before before we go forward. So, so what can you model? Can you actually sort of predict like the through flow or where people might congregate? I think like the dwell time. <laughs> exactly. The building sciencey bits I think are easier for us mm -hmm. to simulate. Yeah. Know, how, how much, much solar radiation, yeah. how much daylight is going to creep through the building envelope and into the space, how it's going to move around. When we start to project how people and simulate how people are going to use the space, that is a little bit of a softer science where we're starting to um, dig in a little bit and try to reinforce some of the simulation bits that we're doing. Uh, for instance, NBBJ has partnered with uh, neuroscientist uh, out of the University of Washington, uh, Dr. John Medina. He's been working for, with us for the past two years um, and has uh, really done a series of explorations with us and trained some of our staff uh, in talking about if we go back to the Human Experience Toolkit, maybe one of the features that we're about to release, the work in progress, is a prospect refuge calculator for the floor plate. So if we think back to how, uh, you know, and this is uh, Dr. Medina's uh, words. Prospect that, refuge. Prospect and refuge. So uh, his, his hypothesis as a neuroscientist is, is that our brains have developed over millions of years, uh, starting in the savanna in Africa. Wow. And uh, the places where... People most thrived then, and the theory is that where people will most thrive now, because our brains were hardwired then, <laughs> is in a place where you have uh, access to both uh, prospect, meaning that big overlook on the savanna, you know, you're, uh, you're you can up see and you potential can see predators. potential predators, right. uh, and refuge where you've got your cave or your, your, you know, your nice, dark, defensible space uh, behind you. And so that's one of the things that we're taking that concept and making an algorithm out of that we can test our floor plate layout. That's fantastic. I mean, in some ways, the original codification of, I guess, anthropological principles was feng shui. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that, 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 it seemed like an arbitrary set of rules, but really it was probably stuff that was hardwired into how human beings like to interact. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have your door, you don't have your back to a door because of... I don't know, a samurai could come in and like strike you down in the middle of the night. Right? You know, so. you've just introduced a great concept for our next toolkit, which is the feng shui toolkit on any building. Yeah. We can use the, apply the principles automatically and give you highlights. Well, you, I mean, you guys do a lot of work in China. So yeah. that's true. I mean, if you could codify a feng shui master's uh, knowledge as, uh, as kind of a data overlay, I mean, they probably wouldn't be very impressed with you because they've got a great, you know, racket running. But and they can still beat us probably at, at the quality of their but, analysis. But, it, but, it, but it, it is interesting when you can start to take insights from human behavior and behavioral science and embed them into data. And that, I think that comes back to the idea that all these methods are, are really nothing without the ideas that they're generating and the kind of thought they're providing in the, in our design environment. Um, hmm. the, I think part of the process for us is just 
helping us remember that these things are important day to day. So even if the algorithm doesn't solve all our problems ever, which it never will, um, that it that it brings us into a way of thinking. And if we're thinking about um, that, there might be a neurobiological response in re in regards to a space, um, and 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 not feeling overwhelmed by the fact that we could start to consider these issues. What else is in your human experience toolkit? Well, one of them is a, is a, is a kind of travel path uh, simulator. And what's really nice about it is you can take a building and you can um, you know, bring in the geometry and figure out which, where all the possible trips that people could take throughout the building. And then using that, we're actually, we're actually finding um, the distance and time and calories and flights of stairs that it would take to travel to all the other locations in the building. So if, you, if you're trying to figure out for a person, oh, they're going from point A to point B or point Z, really, we can start to um, tell you, well, you know, this person who's sitting in this far corner of the building, they're going to have to go a long ways to get where they want to go. Is that right. what you want or not? I mean, to the point where the building itself may have a, a, an average calories burned per day because of the way we've designed it and the way that people are laid out in the building. Right. We've got access to windows and views, access to daylight, I think, on the floor plate. Maybe one of the things that we've worked on recently is taking a, a little bit of a different step in our research where we're uh, not relying just on simulation, but real-time uh, occupant feedback uh, with data. Dan and I worked on a project recently. Uh, this is the Goldilocks project. Project Goldilocks, exactly, yeah. where we uh, took our NBBJ uh, New York City office and we built um, some custom multi-sensors uh, and placed them throughout the floor plate, 50 or so of them, in the ceiling. And I'll, I'll maybe do the really quick version of it, Dan, and you can elaborate. Uh, and then gave all, of the, uh, gave all of the people on the floor plate an app, access to the app, and they can see uh, at any given time how bright or how loud or how hot um, any part of their floor plate is. If they're feeling uncomfortable where they are right now and we're in an open office environment, it's hard to turn your thermostat and really affect, we're not in cubicles anymore, right? So we can't adjust the temperature or the sound how we want it. So. Um, and maybe I don't want to go through the hassle of getting up and going to the other end of the building if I don't really know what's going on over there, but we're giving people real-time access to what's happening all throughout the building or the campus right, right now so they can uh, make more informed decisions. And they can also search for a combination of those things. Uh, and then we, as the designers, get to sort of use ourselves as guinea pigs, see what people are looking for more of, and then, you know, make the space better the next time around. So if you, if you want somewhere that's cooler rather than adjusting the climate controls, you just go to a colder part of the building right. with less people. That's right. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you can't, predict, you can't often create microclimates in that kind of personal way, but you can offer different options within an existing space. If you want it to be cooler, but you don't want to wait 15 minutes for the space to cool down, you can get up and walk 90 seconds away to a space that's already cooler. Well, what did you notice once people had that feedback as well of, you know, not only having the data, but being able to adjust their behavior? Were, were there new types of interactions that did people generally try to seek out other people or? Well, you, the, the part that I uh, thought was relevant from some of the feedback we got was just about discovery. Um, the fact that you don't think about um, picking up and moving a lot of times, you kind of suffer quietly in your corner of the world. <laughs> and there's a reminder that it's open to you that you can go the other place. And it, we, we didn't do a, we could do more, I would say, around the issue of actual scheduling and, um, and, and, and really availability, but even with the, the information we had about occupancy, it starts to tell you more about just a general sense of your surroundings, which is, again, back to John Medina, a really comforting thing for people to understand 
who's around them, what spaces are being occupied, and, and feeling like you filled in that bubble map around you of, of current environmental status. It'd be interesting if you could start to overlay that to specific individuals and what they did. So don't just show me somewhere that's busy, show me somewhere that's full of you know creative people or people that don't work in my area. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we, 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 there's this issue of privacy, right, that we're tackling all the mm-hmm. time. And, all, you know, every project would be a computer vision or, you know, badge IDs uh, that are how much data do you track, how much data do you keep private, how much data do you anonymize, um, are there opt-in, you know, methods. So we're dealing with some of that and using ourselves as guinea pigs is easier than working with some of our mm-hmm. clients sometimes on that. Have you uh, tried tracking badge IDs, like to, like to look at real-time social networks? We have worked with some folks who have their own internal badge ID tracking stuff. This is like the humanized technology, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've been really fascinated by some of the projects that have been involved with that because it's sort of literally like using a social graph to solve productivity problems. Absolutely. Have you guys seen anything interesting that you're allowed to talk about? Not... I don't think that I. I don't think that's <laughs> neither, that, that, neither, that, neither that, seen that, enough that, nor both, know how much information there is that, that, to share. That, I mean, I would say though that um, that you know there's a real-time social graphing which is based on a sample set and a certain set of behavior, and that's we, we still see value in the kind of before and after picture of something as well, which is what's the uh, the way that the organization works today and what the, what's the way that we hope it works with yeah. the new building in tow. And this goes to your, to your earlier point that it, in the past it wasn't really clear with architecture what the measures of success mm. were. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond the fact that the building was finished and rain didn't leak or, you know, you didn't overshoot your budget three times. That's yeah, right. and really what's interesting for us, like, we're lucky in that we are technologists and, and creatives. And for us, it's not about, like, you know, we don't want a world where you get sued or, or dinged for, you know, you, you've designed something, it doesn't perform as expected. What we're really hoping for is a world where you design something, you see how it's being used, you get a chance to revisit the building, to, to move things around, to make it work at its best. Because if we had an idea that a, that a, that a building wasn't um, a construction phase, but, but a lifespan of a building, yeah. and there's a way for us to serve our clients throughout that process and making the buildings better, I mean, I think everybody would say, yeah, great, like, let's, let's plan for that. Let's design with those well, things that's, in that's mind. That's always been the missing piece because I think for some time we've conceived of buildings that could be modular. Yeah. But we just didn't have a toolkit to, beyond the fact that there's more people, mm-hmm. to know how to mm-hmm. make adjustments. I, I used to live in Hong Kong and so I, I was always amazed by that, the, the Foster HSBC building, yeah. Yeah. you know, which had, you know, reconfigurable floors and cranes. When I asked about this, it's actually, the problem was it was so expensive to actually reconfigure it that... So they've never reconfigured they, it? They, they, rarely. they barely made any changes. <laughs> um, but, but I guess just the, the new design of offices or the work that you guys are doing lend itself to potentially reconfiguration based on data? Flexibility you know, and resiliency are things that we're talking about all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are things that, that, that clients are demanding and that we're seeing. You know, we, just, we just went in and uh, did a remodel of the part of the Gates Foundation headquarters, which is just over here in Seattle, where, uh, which we designed for them. Oh gosh, uh, eight years or so ago, and they've got a new group that uh, a new or a new leader of a new group uh, who you know it's been eight years, but this is their technology group, and that things have changed in the way that they've worked in the mm-hmm. last eight years, and they've got some new uh, demands of how they're how they're working, or the space isn't quite fitting their needs, and we've gone through and, and really revamped within 
a flexible framework we built for them eight years ago, now something that's performing uh, you know, above and beyond what they were expecting. And now they're thinking about rolling that out into the rest of the space. Um, maybe I'll, I'll touch quickly on, just because we're sitting here being reminded of uh, these solar shades really quick, uh, access, access to and flexibility within a space so we're sitting here in NBBJ uh, next to great west-facing windows, which have a view of the Space Needle, which we can't see out right now because there are uh, autonomous exterior sunshades that have been deployed on this <laughs> cool spring day. This was a system that uh, we designed and was amazing and the first of its kind in the United States to have uh, these smart exterior sunshades. Uh, there's fixed ones out there, but these are deployed based on the time of day and based on how much sun is outside, supposedly. Um, but there are days like today when the building is generating some heat, uh, but the shades are down blocking the sun because the building thinks it should be blocking the sun. Uh, and so that's an algorithm that somebody wrote 10 years ago that now is frozen. And the problem is, is not that we can't make better algorithms, but that we're, you know, sometimes things get baked and forgotten. Yeah, we're living with the way it was 10 years ago and there's not and, changing. And this, this actually raises sort of the final question I want to ask you about is that given the importance of data and algorithms and you know, parametric design, how is this changing the role of what a great architect is? I mean, when you're looking for people, um, I guess it's not enough just to be creative, you need to be computationally creative. And, and what does that mean? We're trying to build teams that are enhanced by both of those things. I, I think that I, ideally I would love for the architect of the future to be great at both of those things, to be really, you know, have a, have a heavy digital competency. Um, but in reality, we're very collaborative. And so if we've got somebody who is an amazing, you know, ideator and hand sketcher and mm -hmm. Dan partners up with them and yeah. the two of them together are then that team. It doesn't have to be an all-in-one right. well-rounded person. There's so many facets that make a good designer of the future. Yeah, I think what's really key about architects is that we're curious polymaths. Um, that we uh, have interest in all the different portions of something that make up a human environment. and. Going forward, I only think that uh, we're not we're not always the experts of each area. We're not always the experts of structure. We're not always the experts of mechanical systems, but we understand how they interact together. Need sections. So now mm -hmm. today, I would only hope that a that a that an architect uh, would be curious about the possibility of information and the possibility of interaction with data as much as they're curious about interaction with other elements of the environment because. Um, it only expands the possibility of what we can think about. Well, what, what are the digital skill sets? Because even that, there's degrees of automation behind that. You don't really need to be a coder anymore. Yeah, actually that's what's really fascinating and, and I think enjoyable to me is that um, you don't have to be a coder, you don't, but you want to be savvy. You want to know what's possible. If, if you're aware of what's possible, um, you have the entry points to all the other directions. If you know that it's possible to try out 10 different variations of a building automatically, then you'll find somebody and, and a team to do it. Right. Um, but it's key that the lead architect is aware of these things and makes the most of the chance. And what is that skill exactly? I mean, that's not computer science, is it? No. Is it sort of like algorithms 101? Or? I think it's like, I mean, it's 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 design thinking, certainly. It's it's um, understanding what you have at your fingertips and, and, and utilizing it to your, to your best ability. It's again, knowing when to, to try and back up that intuition uh, with some real data and some horsepower behind it and, and ask for that 
whether it's a building science or a social science or, or some sort of overlay uh, on top of, you know, again, back to how you're measuring success is to be able to, to, to really plug in those experts of those, of those spaces when needed. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to understand that technology today is not a black box. Um, it doesn't, you don't put something in and it doesn't come out. Like you shape the process that the, that the, that the information that the methods go through. Right. Um, and I think that's the key awareness that people have to have about technology is that we can shape the outputs, we can shape what we're looking at. Um, and and knowing that you don't have to accept any one way of doing things. But, but do you see uh, that aside, that machine learning and AI will start to be a layer in this process as well? Like I know I've been reading a little bit that you know WeWork when they um, plan sites have started to run the you know things like how many meeting rooms they need as a you know it, it, they take all the data from all their requests and run it into a machine learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. I hope so yeah. because that makes my job more fun uh, because I get to focus on the creative part and the connecting the dots of all of those bits rather than sitting and churning through like drawing mm -hmm. each one of those iterations of meeting layout, meeting room layout. So you don't feel threatened about base plates being designed by computers. Oh, machine learning I don't think it's threatening at all because it, well I mean it's 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 asking us to just take a step back and up into abstraction to understand if, if we use it as a method, how much more possibility there is. Right. So what becomes the skill if you have essentially an architect AI doing a lot of the heavy lifting around the, the, the building trade-offs and design? What is it that the human architect, what do they bring to the table? Besides well, making coffee for the client. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is true about almost every practice, right? Imagine a future where mach machines are making music, and then what does the musician do? The musician decides what's good, and the musician um, conducts that, that, that behavior. And I think an architect's always been a conductor. You know, an architect's always um, rallied groups of drawing, drawing teams, gr groups of um, client interaction um, to the value of the, out the outcome, right? right. And, um, and even to the point of deciding which machine learning algorithm to implement, to believe the outcomes, right. how to share those so outcomes. So they're orchestrating human and non-human resources in the, in the future. Yeah, and it, I think it's more exciting to see where it can go and again, how it could plug in well with, with, I think with what we face every day, which is how do we actually get things built? Because until the machines lay brick on brick themselves, um, which I they may. I saw a robot that can do that. And, indeed. At Autodesk and, University this you know, year. We'll, we'll still be involved because somebody's got to decide when those bricks start being put down. That's true. Well, guys, it's been great having you on the show, and uh, thank you for having me as your guest in your offices. Absolutely. Absolutely. Been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.